deserve every bit of that praise and more. God, I would pray that you would help us to uh, recognize your greatness. And we know that your word says that your greatness is unsearchable. So we know what that means, that one day we're going to fall down before you and we see you for who you are. That is going to be our natural response. God, I would pray that you'd help us in these days to grab a hold of um, how much you love us, but at the same time, how great you are. And, and I would pray that people would be drawn to us because of what they see in our lives. And so we would pray that you'd help us to be your ambassadors. Your word says that you have given us a task in these days. And so I pray that you'd help us to be about those things. I pray that you'd help us now as we look at what your son has done for us. As we head into the next couple weeks, next week uh, being Easter weekend, when we celebrate um, you raising your son from the dead, uh, proving he was who he said he was all along. And we're so thankful for that, that we have those witnesses that saw him and so that we can know that your word is true. So we pray that you'd help us now as we look into your word. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> oh, I am so thankful to be able to see you this morning. <laughs> that is an improvement. <clears throat> I don't know if it's an improvement for you, <clears throat> but it's an improvement for me. Man, what a wonderful morning of worship. I hope you were listening to some of the words that we were able to sing and uh, able to reflect on <clears throat> these truths that Christ not only died, was buried the third day for us to take away sin, but he rose again. Isn't that awesome? And so for two weeks, we're going to be in a series called uh, The Glorious Victory, Glorious victory, and it might seem odd if you're new to the faith or if you're just coming to hear about Christ to have first part of glorious victory be the death of Jesus. But without his death on our behalf, we would not have victory. We wouldn't have victory. Without his resurrection, we wouldn't have proof that he is God. These two go hand in hand and make a declaration about who Jesus Christ is. We're going to be looking at some passages that are so common if you have grown up in the church or if you've been a believer for a long time. These are passages that you are well aware of. Uh, and it's possible, kind of like at uh, Christmas, it's possible, kind of like with some of the familiar themes that we cover in other passages in the Bible, that you might actually see these and just breeze over them, read them in your devotional time, and not drink in the seriousness of them. During the course of this last week, um, there was uh, a moment I had uh, an illustration that was in my mind and my computer, and if you know anything about me and computers, it went a little bit wonky. <clears throat> and so I'm like, okay, I, I know that I had this illustration on my phone. And so um, I, I couldn't bring anything up on my computer, so I shut it down and I began to look for my phone and I couldn't find it in my immediate surroundings, which is pretty normal. And so... I, uh, I began to look room by room through the house, and I'm going from one place to another to another. I'm scouring the entire place for my phone, and now I'm like, I, don't, I have no idea where this thing is. And uh, I sit back down uh, at my notes. I think, okay, I'm going to come up with a new direction. And there is my phone sitting right on my folder that I had closed to begin the search. Yes. None of you have done that before, but uh, here is this thing. I'm so familiar with it that I didn't see it. We're going to cover some scripture this morning, and it may be possible that you are so familiar with it that you no longer see it. 
And in the moment when you need it, in the moment when it's going to minister to you the greatest, right now, as we are discussing uh, who Christ is, what he did on our behalf, it is possible that you may read these verses and not see them for what they are. I'm praying that that is not the case. Remember, the last time that we uh, were looking in the book of Luke, we saw that there were three men on three different crosses, three different um, states that they are in as well. One man on that, die, on that day would die in his sins. He turns to Jesus, he mocks Jesus, he joins with the crowd as if somehow they're going to side with him. He's on the cross, he's dying for things that he actually had done, and he refuses the Savior that's right next to him. He would die in his sins. The next man would die to his sins. He hears the mocking of the other thief. He sees the darkness that has come, uh, the earthquake that would shake that place. He sees the way that Christ, with grace, addresses the people that are around, prays for forgiveness for them, and conquers that moment as only Christ can. And he turns to him, and he kept saying over and over again, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? I am here because I have done things worthy of death, but you are sinless. That's what he says. He died to his sins, one in his sins, one died to his sins, but the third man, right in the middle of it all, died for all sin. He died for the one on either side. By the way, all three of those men would meet on the other side that day. Only two would enter paradise. An eternal decision is made in the final moments of those thieves' lives. One made a decision for eternity with Christ, the other made a decision for an eternity of destruction. And the question we asked was, which are you? Every single one of us is making that decision. The tragedy for that thief on the cross that gave his life to Christ was not that he had to die. It's that he came to Christ so late. Christ was in that area. He had heard of him before that moment, but he did not come to Christ until his final moments. And our plea to you, if you don't know Christ, is don't wait until your dying breath to get right with the Lord. Amen? Amen. So now we come to this two-week series. As we wrap up Luke 23 and begin 24, we're going to look at the death of Christ and the resurrection. Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through the end. Let's stand and read this together. <clears throat> And the scripture says, it was now about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out in a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for the spectacle, when they observed what happened, they began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council and a good and righteous man, had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. 
And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever been laid. It was the preparation day for the Sabbath. It was about to begin. And the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid, and they returned and prepared spices and perfumes And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Do you believe that actually happened? It did. You may be seated. Father, as we look at these passages, I pray you would open our eyes in a fresh way that we would once again be reminded of who you are, of what Christ accomplished, of our natural state, our need of a Savior. Father, that we would look to Christ and that we would see that his death on the cross paid it all, that we would drink it in and we would be changed. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Amen. In your notes, most people are interested in a person's last words. We tend to invest them with more than usual significance. Winston Churchill, after a full and exciting life, professed to find death tiresome. I am bored with it all. The French novelist, Honor Blazak looked <clears throat> up at his doctor and cried, send for Bianchon. I think that's his name. I can't pronounce that. He will save me. And he was delirious. Bianchon was one of his fictional characters. Wolfgang von Goethe, the, uh, Ill- the illustrious German poet, novelist, and playwright, felt himself going out in the dark, and he cried out on his deathbed for more light. Mark Twain was contemptuous to the end. He said, whoever's lived long enough to find out what life is knows how deep a debt of gratitude we owe to Adam, the first great benefactor of our race, for he brought death into the world. He always had a way with words, didn't he? Jan Hus, the uh, bohemian reformer and martyr, burned at the stake in Germany on July 16th, 14. 15, sang a hymn so loudly he could be heard throughout, through the crackling flames. Just before he died, he made a prophetic statement. He shouted out, you may cook the goose today, but God will raise up a gander, and him you will never roast. In the Bohemian language, the name Hus means goose, and in German, the name Luther means gander. At the time of Hus's death, Martin Luther had not yet been born. And of course, everyone knows D.L. Moody's triumphant utterances. As death entered his bedroom, he took a considerable time in dying. He went right through the portals of death. He saw his two beloved grandchildren, Dwight and Irene, who had died young, and he announced, this is my coronation day. This is glorious. All such notable sayings, and there are hundreds of them on record, good, bad, indifferent, paled into insignificance when compared with the last sayings of Jesus as he hung on Calvary's cross. Today, we will consider Jesus' final words. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. At this moment, the moment of his death, Jesus spoke words that demand a response. It says here, It was the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth, because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Those three verses are all tied together. One great big moment that comes with the conclusion, deciding moment where Christ cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Right till the very end, all the way through this death scene, 
Christ has been filled with compassion. He's looking at all of the people, even the ones that are crucifying him, saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. With forgiveness in his eyes, with forgiveness in his heart, he's looking around not only at the crowds that are jeering, not only at the scribes and the Pharisees who knew better, not only at the Romans who are attacking him at the right and the left, uh, who are hoping that he will suffer in a grotesque way so that other people will be dissuaded from trying to be a Messiah. He's looking at all of these people, and for every single one of them, he's looking at them saying, I'm doing this for you. This death is for you. Yes, you may jeer me. Yes, you may condemn me. Yes, you may nail me to the cross. You may stick your spear into my side, but you come right here at the foot of the cross, and I'll forgive you. How significant is that? And he proves it by turning to someone who at the beginning of the episode, Matthew and Mark tell us, that both thieves are cursing his name. And at the end, he's turning to one saying, you're forgiven. Today you'll see me in paradise. Just because you believe. The thief didn't understand all that he was submitting to. He just knew that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. He's still filled with compassion. Also, he is still teaching. Remember, as Christ speaks, he's quoting scripture and asking others to consider it. Psalm 31, verse 5 says, into your hands I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. Remember, they would shout out a passage and it would be understood. People would begin to unpack in their mind the rest of that song or that scripture. They didn't have chapter and verse. It goes on in verse 9 and verse of uh, chapter 31. It says, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I'm in distress. My eye is wasting away from grief, my soul and my body also. My life is spent. My years was sighing. My strength has failed because of iniquity and my body is wasting away. Because of all my adversaries, I've become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I am forgotten as a dead man, out of mind. I'm like a broken vessel, for I have heard the slander of many. Terror is on every side. While they took counsel together against me, they schemed to take away my life. As for me, verse 23 says, I said in my alarm, I'm cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried to you. Oh, love the Lord, all you his godly ones. The Lord preserves the faithful and fully recompenses the proud doer. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. A picture of what was going on right there at the cross and the picture of where we should find our strength. He says, even I cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even I cried out in my distress, where are you? Only to find that you had taken care of it all. Father, you're right here. He says, I commit my spirit to you. And he speaks to us through it. He makes this statement, and now everyone around must respond. He's in full control. I want you to notice the responses that are at the foot of the cross from the heavens all the way down to the believers that were there. And I want you to consider this morning your response. We'll go through these quickly but I want us to consider each of these responses and notice that it's not only verifiable that these things happen, but they force us to make a conclusion ourselves this morning. Six responses. 
to the death of Christ. Six responses to this moment where he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And the first thing that we see in this passage is that the heavens responded. The heavens respond. They respond with a declaration of judgment. All the way through the scriptures, when we hear about judgment, it is always with dark overtones. I'll just give you a couple of passages that are known to be messianic. First uh, Samuel 2, 9 and 10, a declaration at the birth of Samuel of a Messiah that would come. And in there it says he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked will be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord will be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder from heaven. Any of that happening on the cross as he becomes sin for us? Job 5 says he catches the wise and their own craftiness and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and they will grope at noon in the night. Familiar? Amos 8 9 and 10, it says, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning and all of your songs into lamentations. You'll run away, beating your chests. I'll bring a sackcloth in every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like a mourning for an only son, and in the end of it, like a bitter day. Here's darkness in these pictures of destruction. It always accompanied the picture of judgment. As this veil is drawn over the sun while he suffers, those that had read the scriptures were aware this is a picture of judgment. Now, there was no reason for there to be darkness at noontime. Uh, even the ancients understood this. The question that I have to ask is, did this really happen? We see in this moment that it says darkness was there, and it gives you a specific time, and we know if it's A.D. 33, the actual date, and that they timed the Passover based on a certain phase of the moon, which would have made it impossible for it to be an eclipse. One author, um, a Christian evidence writer by the name of Joel, says, during the last three hours of Jesus' death on the cross, an unusual darkness struck the land. It was most definitely the result of God's direct intervention. Why? The maximum duration for a total solar eclipse is seven minutes, not three hours, especially at the latitude of Jerusalem. A solar eclipse can only occur at a new moon, but we know that Jesus was crucified at the Passover. Yet the New Testament records three hours of darkness during Jesus' crucifixion. He says, but are you aware that it's also confirmed by four historians outside of the Bible? Phlegon, Thallus, Africanus, and Tertullian. Just a couple of these I will read quickly so that you know that they are there. Phlegon, a Greek historian who wrote an extensive chronology around A.D. 137. He writes that an earthquake accompanied a darkness in the year of the 202nd Olympiad, which would be A.D. 33. There was the greatest eclipse of the sun, and it became night in the sixth hour of the day, which is noon, so that stars even appeared in the heavens. There was a great earthquake in Bithynia, and many things were overturned in Nicaea. This is an extra-biblical writer writing about that moment. Uh, Africanus, uh, which is uh, a, an extensive um, statement that he wrote around A.D. 222, uh, was a pagan that was converted to Christianity, was going back through uh, all of the Roman historians and found documentation for it. 
But the one that's intriguing to me is from Thales. He wrote a history of the Mediterranean world since the Trojan War. Thales wrote his regional history in about A.D. 52. So this is right after those events would have happened. Unfortunately, most of his original writings have been lost. However, he is specifically quoted by Julius Africanus. Um, and Africanus was renowned third century historian. And he wrote, Thales, in the third book of his histories, explains away the darkness at this moment as an eclipse of the sun. It is unreasonable, as it seems to me. In other words, he says it can't be an eclipse. It had to be the Lord. But he quotes, there was an eclipse on the day Christ died. These are extra-biblical writers, accepted as good historians, and they noticed a darkness that was around the world. The heavens respond with a declaration, judgment. But notice also that the temple responds. It says that now it was about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth, because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Imagine how shocking this would have been. In Hebrews, we are told that uh, as Christ died, he is the inauguration of a new and better way. He is not just the Messiah in the sense that they were anticipating somebody that would come and set them free, but he literally would set them free in relationship to sin. He would set them free from the need to continually sacrifice uh, bulls and goats and rams. There was no longer a need for sacrifice because Christ had at one time conclusively paid it all. New and an inaugurated way. Imagine for a moment that you're a priest. And day after day you're coming to the temple and there are so many of you by the time that Christ and all of the people, millions of people are coming to come uh, um, year after year for the sacrificial uh, system to be completed, they would have to uh, arrive in seasons and in groups. And so these priests were arranged according to different activities that would go on in the temple. And the highest one is reserved for the high priest. He would go in one time a year on the Day of Atonement behind this veil. But everybody that went near that veil did it with awe and concern. If you handled this wrong, they understood they would put bells on the ankles of that high priest so that when he went in, you could still hear the jangling of those bells to make sure that he was alive. If it ever stopped, they had a rope on his ankle so they could pull him out so no one would have to go in to the Holy of Holies. If he was not adequately prepared, in their mind, they are thinking they would go in there and die. It was with great fear that they would approach the God of all of the universe. And they would go through the sacrificial system and they would make atonement through these sacrifices for sins and through different grades, they would have different levels where they would be able to come into this temple. But that one, they would pass by. Even on Passover as they're preparing the bread and they're preparing uh, the, the incense that would flood that place. And as they are doing all of these pictures of the blood that was sacrificed for them, of the Passover lamb, as they were going through all of these preparations, they would go by that curtain with nerves and fear. Now imagine on the middle of that day, the day of preparation, as they're getting ready once again to go into that location, they go into the temple and it has been shaken by an earthquake and the veil is ripped from top to bottom. What would you be thinking? As a priest, how significant would that moment be? I can't imagine the shock and concern. Some had written about it. But the question you have to ask is, did this actually happen? Is it possible that there's any record of 
an earthquake or the rending of a veil. Uh, AD 33 um, says, after three hours of darkness at midday, April 3rd, 33 AD, Jesus died on the cross. Immediately, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn. In Wadi Zelim, located in the southwest shore of the modern Dead Sea, exists an outcropping of laminated Dead Sea sentiment, sediment. The sediment outcrop is a distinctive one-foot-thick mixed layer of sediment. And it shows there the uh, Qumran earthquakes onshore ground ruptures. So there was an earthquake in Qumran in 31 BC, and they can time that. So they see in this sediment this moment where there was a great earthquake that uh, had been recorded extra biblically in 31 BC. 13 inches above the 31 BC event bed is another distinctive mixed layer less than one inch thick. The sedimentation rate puts this second earthquake at 65 years afterwards, or about 33 A.D. There is direct physical evidence in the thin layer of disturbed sediment from the Dead Sea of an earthquake around 33 A.D., and this evidence shows it to be a, an earthquake on the magnitude of 5.5. Secular geologists Jefferson Williams of Supersonic Geophysical and colleagues Marcus Schwab and A. Kim Brower of the German Research Center for Geosciences both confirm this. Widespread earthquake in 31 B.C. and a seismic event that happened around 33 A.D., Thus, this earthquake was clearly the one that happened at Jesus' crucifixion. Not a group of believers, the geoscientists there, that had discovering that. They're just looking at the facts that are written in the ground. The heavens go dark. The earth begins to shake. The veil in the temple rips from top to bottom. There is chaos in the temple. There is concern uh, right there at the foot of the cross. And everybody has gone from jeering and antagonistic and evil to wondering at that moment what just happened. And Christ says, it's finished. I just finished the work. How moving would that have been? It was so moving that the first one that we hear responding is a centurion. He says he's crying out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And the centurion saw what happened, and he began praising God. Uh, praising, by the way, is written as a repetitive statement. He was saying this over and over and over and over again. Uh, Matthew and Mark actually say, he's shouting out, surely this man was the son of God. He began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent, righteous. This is an amazing declaration for somebody who was a Roman, they always thought in case they'd accidentally put somebody to death that hadn't done what they said, they said, but nobody is an innocent. Therefore, you're putting people to death and they probably deserve to die for something else, so do it with vigor. You never know what people have done, but he says, surely this man is innocent of all things. This was wrong. Imagine the centurion a man that's hardened by putting people to death over and over again. He's done this for Rome. Remember that he and his men, 100 men, have been from the very beginning assigned to Jesus. They're the ones there um, that are beating Christ and spitting on him and saying, go ahead and, and joining with uh, the Herodians saying, prophesy to us. If you're the Messiah, if you're, doing, if you're such a great man, why don't you do some magic? 
they're looking at him and jeering there uh, excitedly, putting him on parade as they go through Jerusalem on a feast day. All of these people here would have been horrified to see him put on parade right through the middle of all of their activities. But the Roman centurion said, man, we got this. They were into the crowd control. They grabbed Simon to help carry that cross so that he would make his way all the way through Jerusalem. It was a bloody spectacle. They had whipped him to within an inch of his life. They were gleeful about the stripes that were put on his back because they thought that it would deter anybody else from rising up against Rome. They thought they were doing the highest duty. And they get all the way up there to the foot of the cross, and once again, they're nailing him to the cross. They are abusing him in the process, and they are sitting there with their hearts unchanged by what they are seeing. Until this moment, the world goes dark, the earth begins to shake, there's chaos on the hill, the veil of the temple is ripped, and Christ with confidence, releasing on his own power, his spirit saying, I'm done, it's finished. He dies and the centurion goes, this is not what I've ever seen before. Surely this man is the son of God, he is innocent. Did this really happen? It's interesting, uh, in Rome, um, in the Palatine uh, area in Rome, Palatine here, we have a picture. Uh, on the left-hand side, it's just the, uh, what's scraped into the plaster. Uh, and on the right-hand side, somebody has cleaned up a little bit artistically that rendition of a, a man that is there at the foot of a cross. At the top of it, you can see that the man on the cross has been given a donkey's head. This is not a god that they are honoring. Um, but the title that's written underneath there is Alex Aminos Worships His God. Here it is, a man that's at the foot of a cross worshiping somebody who has been crucified. And notice the wound on his side. Even extra-biblical historians, people that are watching this say, this is definitely a picture of Christ and the Roman view. They did not have a high view of somebody who would bow at the feet. But here is a man that for some reason has been called to worship Christ and it's recorded in the Palatine Hill there in Rome. It's part of their exhibit. There were people who, even though a man was on a cross, felt compelled to worship him. Why? Because his death was supernatural and unlike any other, folks. What would cause a hardened man that had seen battle and death year after year after year, what would cause him to bow his knee and make this declaration? Something supernatural happens in not only the world around him, but in his heart. He says, surely this man is innocent. The heavens responded, the temple responded, the centurion responds, but also notice that the crowd responds. 48, it says, and all the crowds who had come together for this spectacle, whom they have when they observed what had happened, began to return beating their breasts. They are no longer cheering. They're no longer shouting out in confidence. They're no longer excited that they're in the group that crucified Jesus. The crowd responds with a declaration at this moment. Guilty regret. What did we just do? They have gone from jeering and concern. Remember, they've been there the entire time. They just want to see him gone. They just want to see uh, the temptation of all of the people around to follow a Messiah. They want that eradicated until the darkness comes, until Christ breathes his last the way that he did. Pretty shocking moment. As Peter would preach his first sermon 
at Pentecost, he looks out at them in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, and he says, men of Israel. Now, these are all of the people who would have been there and in the know. These are the people who had witnessed these events, who were quite possibly there jeering. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you, you saw this, by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. You yourselves know it. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. But God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death, since it is impossible for him to be held in its power. Verse 36, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart um, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? We know this is true. We've been waiting for the answer. What is it that we can do to absolve ourselves? Peter says, repent, each one of you. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You'll be forgiven of your sins. You'll receive the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and all those who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Is that amazing? So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day they were added about 3,000 souls. You want to know why there was such a dramatic response? Because from the moment that the earth shook and they realized their peril, they had no answer. No answer. What do I do with my sin? The righteous one was just killed. To hear that he was risen from the grave, they ran to him. These same ones who accepted the guilt, we did crucify him, but now we're set free. The crowd responded. But there's two other groups here that are pretty significant. It says in verse 50, And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, the city of the Jews, he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Now, it's intriguing that Joseph sees what's going on at that time. It's the Passover. You're supposed to be there on the Passover. Every righteous man is supposed to be there. But evidently, he is so turned up by what is going on that he decides to leave Jerusalem. He's not at the council. He's not there at the foot of the cross. He's not willing to participate in any of it. He did not speak up. But when he sees the earth go dark, when he sees the temple has a rent curtain, when he hears what's going on with everybody, he says, this can't continue. This man is our Messiah. And he has courage in that final moment to go when everybody else is gone and ask for the body of Jesus. Let me give him an appropriate burial. A man that maybe had left in fear all of a sudden becomes fearless and says, let me give him respect. There is a group that's been famous in the United States for a long time called the Navigators. You may be familiar with it. They're a group that has focused for a long time on the memorization of Scripture and the discipleship of new believers. And they've existed for quite a while, really had their strength in the United States, but they've sent missionaries around the world. And one of their first missionaries, one of the first missionaries for the Navigators was a guy named uh, Roy Robertson. Um, he had come to faith at Pearl Harbor. He had already given his life to Christ, he said, earlier than that, but he did not come to a faith that was 
uh, vocal or significant until Pearl Harbor. He was on a ship. He and a couple of buddies, a bunch of men were going off of the ship to go uh, carousing, and he ended up uh, at a Bible study. And in this Bible study with another couple of guys, uh, this guy was going around and said, hey, you all are claiming that you're believers. Why don't you just tell me what your favorite verse is and something significant? He says, there's only 15 guys that were in this little Bible study. He says, but as they went around, he says, I've been ra- I began racking my brain for a Bible verse that I remembered. And he says, and to my horror, I, I, all, I had told all of these guys that I was a Christian and that I'd known about Christ since I was little. I couldn't remember one verse. He says, and finally... John 3.16 pops into my mind, and I began to recite it, and he said we need to say why it was significant to us. And he says, in my heart, I'm saying it's significant to me because it's the only one I can remember. Uh, It makes me not look like a fool. He says, and just as I'm getting ready to speak it, the guy next to me says John 3.16, and I realize the gig is up. He says, I began speaking to my own heart, saying, Roy, you're a fake. You're a fake. The next morning, he says, uh, the alarm bells begin to go off, and we were under attack. It was Pearl Harbor. He said that uh, in these moments, as all of the Japanese are beginning to come down and bomb the ships, there was uh, a group of people uh, that were on the deck that understood that actually for the first 15 minutes of the firefight, they had, had only loaded blanks into the guns. They'd been using practice rounds and were not prepared for war. He says, so as the zeros are coming in and the ships are under attack, he says, for 15 minutes in a three-hour firefight, I'm shooting blanks, hoping to scare away the enemy. He said, it was not that effective. They're racking the ship with bullets. And I began to shout out to the Lord, Lord, if I make it through this, I want to live for you, he says, But I began to shout at myself, Roy, for your entire Christian life, you've been shooting blanks. You've been ill-effective. You're of no use for the battle. That was the night that he turned his life around. He began to study Scripture, to live as if it mattered, gave his life to Christ and became a missionary in a significant way. I think about this righteous man, and I have no idea what was going through Joseph of Arimathea's mind at that time. But I do know that for many of us, we can end up in that same spot, can't we? If you review your own life right now, and the verses that are significant, and the last moment that you can pick out that Christ used you in a significant way to make a difference in somebody else's life, is it possible that you're sitting here today, and these significant verses are so common to you, they've been sitting in your path, and you've known the God of the universe, you've known all about him all of these years, but you've been living for yourself. You're shooting blanks for Christ of no effect against the enemy. Joseph of Arimathea sees in this moment an opportunity to turn that around, and he goes before Pilate. He goes before the Romans. He goes knowing that they could ask for his life. You want to follow this guy? You die with him but he says he's worthy of respect. I would declare to you this morning, Jesus is worthy of respect. A righteous man responds. But also there were faithful women. Notice the words that are used here. Verse 49, it says, and all of his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee. In other words, they've been there the entire time. Now, whenever something is repeated in Scripture, it wants you to take note of that, and it comes again. So, All of these people are shocked 
But the women there who have accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, still drinking it in. Now we see Joseph of Arimathea and the other things that are going on. Verse 55, it says, Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee, this is their name now, those who have been there from the beginning. These faithful gals are watching from a distance, and they go and they see where he is laid. And when everybody else is gone, here these faithful gals are preparing to bury the Savior. I don't know why it's happened this way. I don't know what's going on, but there's our master. And they go, it says, and the final word is that they prepared the spices and perfumes, but they obeyed the Sabbath according to the commandment. They stayed faithful to what they knew. Now, the commandments ultimately would become unnecessary in Christ, They would follow those just by following Christ. But they obeyed what was going on, and they were known as faithful. The faithful women responded with a declaration, he's worthy of devotion. They prepared the spices not knowing they wouldn't be needed. Six responses. Oh, folks, we're way out of time. I think that clock is right. I haven't been paying attention. I'm sorry. Let me wrap up with this. Skeptics respond to this day. What about the bloodiness? What about all of the, um, the, the horror that is displayed on the cross? Is that really necessary? Romans chapter 3 tells us that it is. It says that Christ put him on display. Romans 3, 23 tells us that, um, that he was killed for us. But when we look at 26, it tells us that he put him on public display so that you would know the price had been paid and so that you would look. He was made a bulletin board for us. Why? Because we as humans would not look at anything else. The only reason we look at the cross, it is so horrific that it causes us in our human nature, just like people going by an accident on a freeway, we all stop and slow down and look at the mess. That is our human nature. He creates a mess out of this. He kills Christ on our behalf so that we would look at him. He puts him on display and says, look at this. I did this for you. We'll never understand what had to happen in the eternals in order for us to be able to be given entrance into heaven. But we can see the death of Christ in all of its horror and say, judgment had fallen on one so that we would not have to experience it. He took our place. And Christ displayed him publicly. We've been talking about it ever since. It was an effective plan to get you to look his direction. The question is, what will you do with Christ? How will you respond? There really is only one of two responses when we come to Easter. When we come to this time of year, when we look at these passages, you either believe or you reject. You either hear these things and say, that's my Savior, Or you set it aside and say, I don't buy it. Those are the two responses. We're back to the two that were on the right and left of Christ. And this morning I would ask you, which one are you? If your desire is to give your life to Christ this morning, if you're here and you haven't considered Christ, or you're not sure if you're saved, I would ask you at the end of the service to just come forward and talk. Uh, Men will be up here with me. We'll be able to uh, share the gospel with you one more time, be able to introduce you to that Savior uh, that your heart is longing for. If you want to give your life to Christ, we'll pray with you this morning.
But if you're a believer, let's look at these passages that become so familiar we forget about them and see them in a fresh way. Amen? Amen. And respond once again in faith. Let's pray and we'll go. Father, help us this morning to see these truths, to see the things that you've written for us. Father, to be captivated with them once again, to see the truthfulness of what is in Scripture, to see that each of these things, uh, though we don't need those things, they can be verified by outside sources. But the most profound things we still have to take by faith. You sent Christ to take our place on a cross. He died in full control, took all of our sins, all of our judgment, And in that moment, Father, if we put our faith in him, we are set free, completely forgiven. We thank you for this and ask that you would give us eyes of faith, that in this season we would reflect on these scriptures not as familiar uh, and forgotten, but, Father, as a way to foster our faith. Grow us up in you, we ask. Help us to be vibrant believers. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.